five, four, three, two, one. Boom. We're live. Sersha, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you on. What you been up to? I've been enjoying the sun, working on my freckles and uh, yeah, so I was getting used to lockdown life the past few weeks. No, it's definitely a, a change of lifestyle, all right. Um, so how does a girl working in tech the last 10 years in London, one of the fastest cities in the world, just decide to jump ship, um, move back to southeast Ireland in Yall and live in a lighthouse that is over 200 years old? Yeah, that's the question I get asked a lot. And um, I would like to tell you there was a grand plan that I would I decided at 20, go work for 10 years and then, you know, you'll come back and you live by the sea. But uh, no, that wasn't the case. I think I turned 30 and decided that I should probably be doing some of the things that an adult should be doing, you know, either getting married, settling down, buying a house. And uh, the third uh, option seemed like the most likely for me. And yeah, I just, I viewed a property here in Yall and fell in love with it, did it up over the course of like 18 months. And I was, yeah, like you said, working at a really fast pace in London in tech sales and had done eight years of sales carrying a quota and wanted to take a break um, I think you know you talked about going at 100 miles an hour I don't think it's sustainable to go at that speed for ever so yeah I guess listen to your gut and I just said you know what um, I have my house on, uh, at the sea I'm just going to take a break now and come back and it's been great it's been probably one of the best things I've done Yeah and before we started the podcast we talked about I suppose this sabbatical we have the last couple of months with COVID um, and the possible shift from urban lifestyle back to remote, which is a completely 360 turn because um, over the last 10 years, everyone's moving city, city, Dublin's coming out and out and London's coming out. So what are your What's your opinion on maybe people moving towards a more remote lifestyle? Yeah, I, I know when we were chatting earlier, Andrew, and I know you live in London, I the benefits of living in London and in an urban city are what's around you. So being able to go to restaurants, bars, shows, all of that. But when something like COVID happens and you're stuck in a one-bedroom flat and looking at the four walls, I think it's made people rethink how they're living and where they're living. So on my Instagram, I was putting out some polls the past few weeks and it was about 90% of people said, I've I've re- I've been rethinking where I'm going to live and I think moving more remote is something that I'd like to do. So I think there's definitely a shift towards people living in the countryside and having more space. And if not, maybe doing something to their homes that makes it a place that they want to spend more time in. Yeah. yeah, no, it's uh, it's such an interesting trend, really, because how could something go 360 so fast? Um, and I even heard since my, I'm here back here now two and a half weeks and people have been saying to me, this person's renting a house in y'all. And when I was leaving Ireland five or six years ago, everyone was moving somewhere else whether it's the city or they're moving abroad yeah. and it's actually nice to hear people are going back into their hometown Yeah and I think I, I've been really surprised like you Andrew like I left 
um, y'all when I was 18 went to college lived away for the past years and I never thought I, w- I would come back or maybe I had it in my head that I would but since I've been back I've noticed there's a lot of people that were living in San Francisco or Sydney and they've moved back and they are working remotely from y'all you know maybe not for y'all companies but for big tech companies or global companies from here so yeah it is great to see it yeah for sure here get stuck into the wine there as well don't yeah, be afraid of it um, so on the property side of it you built this house of utopia um, let's get into the logistics of it Listen, tell me what the first time you viewed the property so I was um, whiling away hours on Facebook uh, one night <laughs> as you do and came across an article that said the most spectacular views on the Irish market at the moment I was on the independent view looked at looked at the article clicked in and I was like that's a all across the road from where I went to school so flew home the following weekend and viewed it and the property was on the market for about 30 days then it was a blind auction um, so with a blind auction you don't really know who's bidding how many are bidding or what chances you have of getting it um, so luckily won the bid um, that day and then there was it took a couple of months to get the deeds um the Irish built so Irish Lights own all the lighthouse and lighthouse keepers houses um, in Ireland so the Irish would have built these around the end of the 1800s or around there and the deeds got lost um, so that was like over 100 years ago the deeds got lost so it took us ages to find them um, and during that time then I went looking at planning and what changes I could make to the building um, how I was going to finance it all of those things and started planning what it was going to look like at the end And what areas of the building did you have to preserve? Uh, Everything Everything. Yeah. Oh man, so, what a headache. I know. So that's yeah, that's what people would have thought. So I, I remember when I was looking at property first, I rang an engineer and he was like, Don't buy that place. You won't even be able to change as much as a doorknob if you buy it. And then got a few other opinions and um rang the conservation officer before I ever bought it to see what could I change. Um and her advice was that we want young people to buy all these old buildings around the country because if if people don't buy them and invest in them they're going to come tumbling down and the state will have to invest in doing them up so yeah her advice was you know you'll have to keep the character of the building but you can modernise it bring it up to modern standards so once I kind of knew that I knew and I didn't want to change an awful lot the reason I was buying it was because I loved how it looked I just wanted it to be hot like it was damp You like your nose would be running if you walked into the house it was so cold the wind was whistling through it so it was really cold the electrics the plumbing were all all needed to be done sounds like my house in London (laughs) probably like a lot of houses I've lived in before but um and then make the most of the views. So there was really small windows. So I just wanted to like open it up so you could look at the sea. That was the main thing I wanted to do in every room in the house was that you were just looking out to sea. And when you first started getting moving on the property and the renovation, what was the biggest restriction? Do you think was it access? Yeah, access. So where it is. So I'm lucky in that it is in a town. It's the only lighthouse and keeper's house in a town in Ireland. All the rest are remote, like on islands or like miles away from civilization. So I'm lucky that it was in a town. But the only thing is access. So it's it's beneath the road. So anything we wanted to get in or out of that house was craned in. So I had to hire a crane, you know, to lift in washing machines or lift out rubble or any machinery we needed. So access was a huge thing and then because it's protected things move a little bit slower so I had to get planning and it had to be overseen by an architect a conservation architect Yeah. so you just had to like maybe tread a little bit more carefully than you would on um, you know another house 
and when you first walked into the property, the first time you viewed it, did you have like a, a vision in your head of how this is going to look when it's finished? Or was, you, was your first initial reaction, fuck, there's a lot of work to do here? Well, my first, so this is a, the funny thing is, so all my life, my mom has always said about meeting dads, this is a different tangent, uh, when you know, you know, she was like, the minute she met dad, she was like, oh, when you know, you know, and she's always said it to me and I never really got it until I walked into that house and I was like, this is what she was on about, but for me, it was about a building, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So the minute I walked in, I was like, oh, this is amazing. I didn't foresee the amount of work that was needed like most things in life you haven't you really don't know what you're getting yourself into I knew there was a good bit of work to be done but yeah there was a lot more I think than I had predicted yeah and you bought the property overseas so obviously there's a lot more red tape you were you a first time buyer yeah first time buyer yeah but you were probably classed as a foreign investor if you bought overseas yeah yeah. exactly you got it yeah Yeah. so getting a mortgage can be tricky when you're buying from abroad Um, so I know a lot of we'll say even Irish overseas are thinking I'll move to Dubai or Sydney or Perth work in the mines make money and buy a place at home Hmm. but there isn't particularly a product in in Irish banks for people that are looking to buy a house from abroad you know that are Irish Um, so I I got a holiday home mortgage so that was kind of the only mortgage that available to you if you're buying from abroad yeah so yeah it's tricky enough but there are a couple of banks that will offer them and we're um could you tell us what bank helped you out? Yeah, so EBS. So I, m- my master's, I, I made friends with a girl there, Sheila, who ended up running some a couple of EBS branches. Um, mm. And I rang her when I was having getting no's from all the banks on mortgages. I rang her, I was like, is there any product? So she gave me advice on um, which mortgage I could get. So I went with EBS and they've been brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. And if you were to describe your interior design style, if you had to do it in a couple of words, what do you think your style is? I think mainly what it is, is um, looking at where the house is situated and drawing from outside, you know. So for me, looking at the colours that are outside of the house was kind of my inspiration, you know, the colours of the landscape, of the sea and of the lighthouse. So all the colours in my house kind of mirror what you can see outside the house. And then otherwise it's using raw materials or reclaimed materials. So as much as I could, I tried to get stuff on eBay, um, use like timber, you know, like sleepers, my table, my benches are all made from old railway sleepers. My lights are from a Russian Navy ship. So they're all like reclaimed and old, but the other thing would be investing in certain key pieces in the house so that you have that kind of luxury at home feel. Yeah, and would you would you say that you got most of your inspiration from similar type houses or did you just take a bit of this, bit of that from everything online? Well, I think most of my inspiration probably came from staying in like hotels with my work. I was having to travel lots and lots around Europe and having to stay, um, you know, in these hotels and that's probably where I got a lot of my inspiration was the interiors of different hotels Soho Farmhouse Soho House I don't know if if you know those but if you don't Mm. take a look at them Um, their interiors are amazing so I would say yeah they're obviously like the Scandi style everyone loves you know like the chilled out vibe boho so there is a little bit of that but yeah I wanted every room to have a different theme but that there would be a vein of the similar colour running through the whole house so that they would be connected but not every room would look similar and I didn't want it to be too nautical either because I think you know that's going to be very obvious because where it is yeah you know Um, if you had to choose your most expensive 
purchase or what is what is the most expensive purchase you would to put into the house? Uh, I don't know. I know the house itself obviously was the most expensive, but I yeah. suppose luxury item. Like I say to most people that most of my savings are behind the walls of that house. Uh, yeah. You know, because it was so damp insulation, things I just never thought. You know, I was like, that's the price of a holiday to Thailand for you know the insulation for one of the rooms or steel. You know, they're like huge investments that I didn't foresee. But for things that you can see, like my Smeg fridge, I got an insulated bathtub um, and then rainforest showers. So invested in those, hanging chair. So like in each room, I picked a key piece I was going to invest in and then all the other bits are not, we'll say expensive items, but maybe more reasonable items. Um, so yeah. That's Do you think we will see a shift for younger people buying older properties listed buildings in the future I would absolutely love if we did I think like on my Instagram I talk a lot about buying older properties like even in the town we're in here y'all it's like a medieval town there's beautiful old buildings um so I think if if younger people were aware of how it's not that difficult, you know, like, yes, you do need to plan it more. Yes, you might need to have a contingency fund in place, but you can buy really cool properties um, that are have maybe a bit more character than buying off plan. Um, and I think it would be great if the government had some kind of a scheme in place, too, that wasn't just for first time buyers buying off plan, but for people taking a risk and buying an old property. Mm-hmm. You know, I get you. Yeah. That would be the ideal. Um, obviously, the house has become a business for you as well. Mm. Um, you've obviously taken a hit the last couple of months. Yeah. I know you're big into multiple revenue streams. Um, if you want to talk a bit about like about that. Yeah, so I renovated while I was living in London, which probably was when you said access was the hardest thing, probably living living away while renovating was probably probably the most difficult thing. Um, yeah, so when I bought the house, I didn't particularly have you know, any plan to move home at the time. So I said I'd Airbnb it. Um, And it really just took off from there. There was just such demand for people to come stay here. Um, And people maybe who hadn't even heard of y'all as a place, but wanted to be near the sea. So yeah, multiple revenue streams is something I talk about a lot in my career and in life, because I think it's just the safest bet. You know, if one area of your life takes a hit, you can build it up on another one. So I have my Airbnb, I do interior design, I do business consultancy. So yeah, I have multiple revenue streams set up in my own life now. And it was the same when I worked at LinkedIn, you know, you'd have multiple revenue streams, you know, makes life a little bit simpler. What career do you think takes up most of your time? And just take COVID out of it now, if your normal lifestyle, would the Airbnb take over be your time now at the moment or is the consultancy? Uh, the, the consultancy probably is the most and interior design. Um, so you're working on interior design projects apart from your own place? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when I um, finished up in London last year, I my colleagues at LinkedIn actually got me a gift of an interior design diploma. They were like, go do it. Because all I was talking about was like interior design. So I um, trained with the British Academy of Interior Design. Um, and now, yeah, I do interior design projects for people like Colour Consultancy or Whole Homes or Rooms. Um, so that's big. But Airbnb, I manage that, but I ought, like I, I get help. Like, you know, there's I use dry cleaners. I have ladies that come in and do the turnovers for me. So it doesn't take up a huge amount of time, that side of things, Airbnb, but... And do you move out when people come in or...? Yeah, so shared? up to COVID, I was traveling loads. Yeah. So like the past year or so, I've like spent a month in Amsterdam, went and worked there, worked in London, just 
as and when so I'd rent it out when I knew I was going to be away um, so for now th- that lifestyle suits me mm. um, and Airbnb is yeah it's I think it's it's where I personally are that's how I'm holidaying or I was holidaying before COVID um, and I think that's probably especially now people are going to be staycationing you know after this like the whole thing is people are going to be touring around Ireland for the next I guess for 2020 anyway exactly yeah um, is all your business through Airbnb or do people contact you directly as well? Yeah, lots of contact directly. So, like yeah. de- heavily relying on Airbnb is kind of like building it on a house of cards, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So a lot of it would be through Instagram um, and actually lots of locals too. Um, I guess most of the people that come to visit are from the US, the UK and Ireland. Um, so Instagram will be the main one of my website and then Airbnb will mainly be for people from the US I guess that come and, come and stay yeah, yeah that's a fantastic platform but as I was saying you have to build other platforms as well because just relying on Airbnb they could pull the plug anytime or put in a restriction because I know in London if you have a if you rent an entire home on Airbnb you're only allowed 90 nights for the whole calendar year yeah and then they just cut it off yeah I, I think that probably will happen in Ireland too it's already in place in like Dublin Cork and Limerick you know high rental zones um, in y'all it isn't but yeah it is it is a risky strategy putting all like your hope in Airbnb for the foreseeable like yeah I had a little career on Airbnb I didn't know did I tell you oh did you wow. yeah, yeah I um the the parents' house, <laughs> we have a lovely view looking out at the ferry point, and I, I was stuck for a few quid at the time. We had a spare bedroom okay. downstairs. I said, Fucking, I'm putting this up in a Airbnb. And I thought nothing of it. 47 quid a night, putting up Airbnb. <laughs> Took pictures around the house, and I forgot about it. And uh, I was inside the house watching, I don't know, soccer some Sunday morning. And the door banging close. I said, Jesus, what, the, what is that? Like the mother came flying into the room. She says, what's this? I said, yeah. that you put our house up on Airbnb? So what the fuck are you doing? And I said, well, I'm just trying to make up liquid. I'm going to Chicago in September. I need something. Yeah. But um, yeah, I remember I put the caption. It was like, a, I viewed at Money Camp Buy or something like that. Oh, stop. Oh, my yeah, God. Ma'am had new, Entrepreneurial from the get-go. Yeah. But that's yeah. the thing. Like, it was after the last recession that Airbnb came out, you yeah. know? Know that that's when that business was founded Uber the same so it'll be interesting to see what other businesses come out now after this you know oh exactly I think there'll be probably yeah, obviously it's tough times but um, we're going to see some cool companies come out as well sure, you look at all the good companies Group on Airbnb um, yeah. Lyft uh, Uber all them um, and we are going to go towards an economy like if you look at all them companies and you say what is the secret recipe they're all offering a discounted um, service in mainstream I said Airbnb was cheaper than hotels um, Uber was cheaper than a taxi you know Groupon you could buy tickets cheaper than you could buy in a theatre mm. um, you're probably going to see more of them but I, I'm I, I think you're going to see more changes to be honest in the service or like consultancy I think it's going to go to more performance based rather than hourly yeah. um, I, people are going to Want to, the companies are going to lot, want a lot more bang for their buck. Uh, brand advertising probably won't be as popular. And what I mean by brand advertising, if you find it hard, if you put out a campaign, you can't measure it properly. Uh, oh, yeah. I, so I think your, your companies are going to be spending money that they can track every single penny because after this, like people are going to be wanting to turn, turn the pennies into pounds. You can't just blow money out there and hope for the best and not measure it, you know? Mm. Well, I think even with any of those companies, the key kind of theme between all of them is like cutting out the middleman. 
Mm. Airbnb is cutting out an agency that normally would sit in between like uh, LinkedIn is cutting out an agency that would sit in between Uber the same so it probably will go even more so down that route you know buying direct Exactly what about mortgage brokers do you think there'll still be demand for them? There probably will because people need advice you know and they need to know like across lots and lots of banks where would be the best product for them Did you use one yeah? No, I didn't. No. Yeah. No. no. Like I, I did speak to a couple of them, but I didn't use one in the end. But I think especially for first time buyers, people buying from abroad, they probably will. So mortgage brokers, because it's the, probably the biggest investment you'll make in your whole lifetime. It's such a big ticket item that you probably would pay the extra for it. But um, things like solicitors, you know, would their service move to the cloud? Like those kind of totally traditional roles, I, I think they're probably going to see a change too. Yeah. You know. And- just staying on that subject, do you did you have to go through a few extra middlemen or obviously other service solicitors because yours was a listed bill and you're buying from abroad? Did you have to go a few extra steps in that process? Definitely on the solicitor side of things, yeah. So I think I probably dealt with my solicitor way more often than a, a normal first time buyer would because the deeds are missing, because it's protected, because all lots and lots of different things. Mm. So I think I probably had to lean on professional services a lot more. Um, not prohibitively so, like, I, you know, not to put anyone off buying an older building, but um, them and like engineers and architects, I really needed to lean on them. Mm, yeah. Help you out. <laughs> um, you're going well on Instagram. It seems to be a powerful platform for you. Yeah. Um, What's your main focus on the content side? What do you think is the best engagement? Um, what 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 content do you think you're getting the most engagement out of? Um, well, to to kind of go back a couple of steps as to why I even began it was to crowdsource answers to house questions. So it was my first house. Didn't know anything about houses, how they're built, anything, you know, so... A lot of how I began was around questions on should it be a blue wall or a white wall? Should it be, you know, so it was um, throwing out questions, getting advice from a community. So it built from there. Um, and I, I still do a lot of that, which is around like what, pe- what people are interested in. And then it's around interior trends, the sea. So I think a lot of it is escapism on my page. Yeah. You know, the sea and... Um, there's a lot of engagement around that, interior trends, um, polls, and a little bit around like lifestyle, like day-to-day life of like what we started the conversation on, what going from being in a corporate role to now working remotely is like. So mm. I touch on that a bit too. When do you think was the tipping point on your Instagram? Because you're getting a lot of engagement. Um, so when do, you, when do you think, was it after your RT? Yeah. Um, Appearances? Do you think it started to go up in, um, in follower engagement level or was it before that you started to get growth as well? So I guess how mine grew mainly was through shout outs. So I remember like my first shout out was from Emer Varian Barry. Right. She's a corker living in London um, and she shouted out the page and it grew by like a thousand and I was like, I couldn't believe it. So through, you know, shout outs was the main way I got to like 10K and then I think like anything, once you're at that certain number, it just starts to grow an awful lot and then RTE and just before RTE there was a few like magazines and stuff like that so it's just grown a lot in the past few months um, which is great It's fantastic Um, A lot of us know that you um, featured in the RTE Home of the Year in your finalist Could you tell us about the whole experience from start to finish of entry and all that kind of stuff Yeah so um, 
the producers contacted me the summer I finished the renovation um, to see if I wanted to be part of the show but at the time it wasn't really you know a home like you know when you just finished doing up a house it's like it just, just looks a bit bare so I said you know not this year so then last summer they were they asked would I be interested and I said you know what I'll yeah I'll go for it so they came filming down here in y'all in August um, and it was the most I'd say the sunniest days we got in all of the year you yeah, know what I mean yeah. I don't know how we were so lucky and the sea was just sparkling so yeah they came filming for two days and it was brilliant it was just it was great fun I think it was definitely like a pinch me moment you know like there's lots of bad days in life and there's a certain number of really good days and I just remember on that day being like this is one of those days that you're red letter days this has been a good day so yeah, um, yeah. and I'd never done up a house never done anything with interiors and just to be like asked to even go on it I was like this is absolutely class so yeah it was brilliant Do the producers say much to you like behind the scenes this is what we need to do or is no, it a bit scripted in any way like? not at all no not, not even with like you know the home so like they arrived at like 7am in the morning and I thought they might like fix things you know that maybe weren't in the place mm. they should be or something but no everything is just as you have your house they don't touch a pillow or a cushion nothing is um, and then obviously they'll ask you just to tell the story so that's kind of yeah. kind of like I've done here is just like telling the story of the renovation yeah. yeah and what's the plan for the future so what's uh, on the horizon um, it's a really good question and I think you know the past few months have made us all think a little bit about what we're going to do but um, with the Lighthouse page a lot of that is I'd love to do another project so like the town that we're in here has the most beautiful architectural building so for me I think expanding and maybe doing another um, sister project to the Lighthouse Keepers would be like what I'd be loving to do and then maybe looking towards some products so um, I just found it really tricky sourcing product into Ireland yeah. um, you know really had to go to like place like Lithuania for certain products or things were very much overpriced here for the quality that they were so looking at maybe some products um, um, and then personally the brand our consulting is going really well and my interior design is going really well and the interior design is maybe moving away from going into your house to look at a room and mm. to more an online business. Yeah. So, you know, like half hour consult, you'll send me your pictures beforehand, your ideas, and then we do a half hour consult and then I'll send you, you know, links. So, like an online business that will allow me to work then here in Yall or wherever I would be in the world. You think, do you think you will um, head back over to London for bits of work because obviously the interior design industry is such an inelastic market over there and it's a good place to be do you think you go back and forth a bit for certain definitely yeah. yeah I think like a lot of my inspiration did come from living in London yeah you know, what, the was house. what was your favourite part of town there where you used to like to hang out or go for a walk and look at the well I lived in Brixton and I loved Brixton just because it's so colourful yeah, you know yeah. and I was, I was saying to you before, before we started recording that like my house is pretty colourful too and maybe living there I got a lot of inspiration there but I worked around Central like Tottenham Court Road Soho like loved Soho yeah um, yeah and the more kind of like vibrant cool parts of London East was amazing too like yeah, yeah. Hackney and all them places yeah, yeah they're brilliant I find it lately it's not too far I suppose from where I am in Ealing I um I love going down to Portobello Road on a Saturday morning in, yeah, in Notting Hill. I yeah. just think it's one of the most relaxing places ever. And I just, I'd rather go down to my, by myself. Like people be on to me, uh, oh, we go down to 
Port of Better Road but uh, I, whatever it is I just think it's a very liberating hanging down, hang around there going for a walk through the markets mm. and uh, getting a bite to eat I just it feels like you're somewhere yeah it does it does and you could see anything that's the thing walking the streets of London you could just see anything in people's outfits and everything you're just like where do they get them like it's yeah, yeah it's a great place to live I, I like I miss it but um, yeah the peace of life in y'all for now is uh, yeah is definitely better for me good stuff yeah. Saoirse thanks for coming in thanks for having me it's you know, been great it's been yeah. great um, no I really enjoyed talking to you yeah likewise and uh, look after yourself when we chat to you soon you too right now